Well, good morning, Hilton Head Island Community Church. I'm glad that you all are joining us online as today we're back to online-only services with the very sharp upswing in COVID, new COVID cases in our community. Uh, we made the difficult decision to go back to online-only services this week and next week. And uh, while it stinks, we want to keep you safe. And uh, while I miss you, I want to make sure that your safety is top priority. And so thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully you're at home right now um, enjoying waffles or pancakes or whatever your favorite breakfast thing is. And uh, so really excited that uh, you've joined in with us today. Today we begin a brand new series and it's called I Choose Love. And I just want to tell you right up front that we as a church over the course of these next few weeks, we're going to be diving into some topics that are, are very difficult. They're topics that aren't easy, but they're topics that need to be discussed. We're going to be talking about racism. We're going to be talking about prejudice and bigotry. We're going to be talking about uh, different things like injustice, but we're also going to be talking about reconciliation. And, and there's a couple things that I want to communicate to you today before we dive in. And just take a few moments, as a friend of mine says, and have some straight talk, some real talk. The things that we're going to discuss, we're going to be taking a look at from a biblical perspective. We're going to use the Bible as our basis. In fact, we're going to use the Bible as our main source to discuss these types of issues. Often churches will begin to discuss cultural issues that are going on in the day, and they will begin to just stray away from the Bible. And so we're going to be taking a look at what the Bible has to say about racism and racial reconciliation. And I want you to know right out of the gates that the Bible has a lot to say on this subject. The Bible is full of godly principles of truth, the truth of God's word on this issue. But that doesn't make it any less difficult. Just really being honest with you this morning, this is a very difficult topic for me to discuss. And I want to explain why this morning it, it may be a little bit difficult for, for me to, to um, have a whole series on this. Now, we've talked about racism, we've talked about ra racial reconciliation as a church before. I've never shied away from this topic, but we've never done a whole series on it before. And we've never talked about it at this critical juncture in the life of our country. It's incredibly difficult. In fact, it's pretty uncomfortable for me to dive into, and I want to tell you why. First and foremost, I, I think that it's uncomfortable because of my lack of experience in this area. You see, I grew up, I'm a white kid, I know that's shocking to you, but I'm a white kid from Atlanta, Georgia, and I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia in a day and age where my life was really peaceful. Um, I was never and have never personally experienced any form of racism, of bigotry, of prejudice, of discrimination, or injustice based on the color of my skin. I've never faced that. And so in many ways, the evil one tries to trick me into thinking that just because I don't have that experience, that maybe I'm not qualified to talk about it. The second reason that it's uncomfortable for me is because of this idea of guilt by association. See, as a white man in America today, there's a certain amount of guilt that I feel that it's the people that are the same color as me who have been the ones that have promoted racism all these years. 
And there's a certain amount of, I guess, guilt by association that I kind of think sometimes and I allow the evil one to trick me into thinking that I don't have a voice on this because I'm white, because I've never experienced it, and because I might be a hypocrite, even though I personally have never been a part of any kind of racism. I feel like maybe there's some sort of guilt by association. And then there's a third reason, and that is, is possible missteps or errors. It's difficult for me because of my fear of thinking that I might say something unintentionally that might come across as offensive. And so the tendency, the natural tendency is to say, then because of my lack of experience, because I might feel somehow indirectly guilty and because I'm afraid that I might say something that might offend someone, then I draw the conclusion that I shouldn't say anything. And church, I want you to know that that is a lie from the evil one. And that is the exact reason that we're in the situation that we're in today as a culture and as a country is because people like me and people like you taught, thought those things we conjured up in our minds that we shouldn't speak up because of those things. Well, it's far time it's past time for people like me to talk ourselves into being silent. And so that silence, I believe, is part of the problem. I think that the church being silent on this issue is a part of the problem in America right now. And so we need to stand up as a, a church community. We need to stand up as a community and we need to speak against these things because God's word has so much to say about racism and prejudice and bigotry, and violence, and what we're seeing all around us. And so I'm going to do my best to rightly divide the word of truth. I'm going to do my best to stand and to ignore and put, put aside the fact that I may not feel like I'm the one to be speaking these things, and I'm going to do it not because anyone told me to do it, not because I've been pressured in doing it, but because what we're facing today in America, the Bible has something to say about it. And I'm being led by God's Holy Spirit to do that. And so I'm going to do that, and we're going to start today, and we're going to talk about that. But I also want you to know that I know that this is probably as uncomfortable as it is for me. It may be uncomfortable for you. And I want to set some expectations right here up front. Uh, I know some of you are like, hey, Todd, just go ahead and get into the message. That's fine. I feel like this deserves a little bit of a, a, you know, context. And it, well, it's July 4th. It's Independence Day. You call it a preamble. Okay, that's fine. I'm cool with that. Uh, but I want to set some expectations, just three expectations for you over the course of these next few weeks. First and foremost, I'm fully aware that what we're going to be talking about may make you uncomfortable. And as much as I love you and as much as I love to, to teach from God's word about what his word has to say about comfort and encouragement, the word of God does comfort and it does encourage, but there are times when it challenges. And the word of God does comfort and it does challenge, but the word of God combined with his Holy Spirit always will convict us if we take it seriously. And so my intent is not to comfort you. I don't think the word of God is going to demand that at, of us at this period of time, at this juncture in our history here in the United States of America and our time here as humanity. And so I realize that some of the things that I say 
are going to make you uncomfortable. And I want to remind you that what I'm going to do is to the best of my ability to rightly divide God's word, the word of truth. The second thing is, is I may say some things that you don't agree with. And some of you are like, Todd, it happens every week. That's no big deal, man. Why is that abnormal? Well, it may be the case. It may be the truth. But I want you to know that there may be some things that I say that you may not agree with, depending on where you're coming from. Some of you are going to say, you didn't go far enough, Todd. Some of you are going to say, you went too far, Todd. And I want you to know that I'm only looking to one person for my instructions on what to say from his word. And that's the Holy Spirit. I'm going to follow his lead. And thirdly, I want you to know that I'm not going to get political. Some of you may, because of the content and because of what we're going to be talking about over the course of these next few weeks, you may perceive what I'm saying to be filled with some sort of agenda. You, you may perceive it or you may think that I'm coming from the right or the left or I'm coming from a conservative viewpoint or a liberal viewpoint. And I want to let you know that if we use God's word as our guide in these discussions, and we will, that I have absolutely no agenda. I hate politics. I really do. I strive as best I can to not be political, to be apolitical as a church and to let God's Holy Spirit lead and to guide you. But I'm going to step on some of your toes and I realize that. But I'm also asking God to heal us as a people. I'm asking for the spirit of reconciliation to begin to happen in this country and I'm asking for God to allow the church to lead that and for this church to lead it potentially in this community and beyond. I've got no agenda other than the truth of the gospel and God's word. And so I'm asking one thing from you. And that is, is that throughout these next few weeks that you would be open to being challenged, to being pushed a little bit to maybe even feeling a little bit uncomfortable or maybe a lot uncomfortable of some maybe some preconceived ideas that you have on these subjects and I'm going to ask you to allow God's Holy Spirit to lead and guide you don't be closed off by something that you may hear don't shut yourself down because of something that you may not completely agree with be open to his leading that's how we're going to see change in America. That's how we're going to see change in this culture and in this community. You know, the United States of America is 244 years old yesterday. We celebrated July 4th. Some of you got outside, socially distancing, I'm sure, of course. Some of you got out, you know, on your boat. Some of you went out and played golf and had, had barbecues, all socially distancing, of course. Um, but we celebrated yesterday the 244th birthday of America. And in 244 years, since she has become an independent nation, unbound from the tyranny that the British crown was demanding and demonstrating in the mid-1700s. 244 years that the United States of America has become a constitutional representative republic. 244 years since this new union of free and independent states formed. And boy, we've got a lot to celebrate in America. Our freedom is rich, isn't it? But you know, out of those 244 years, the first 88 was free for all Americans except a group of Americans that had 
a different skin color. For 89 of those 244 years, the first 89 of those 244 years, Americans, all Americans, were allowed to vote freely in elections except for a segment of America who had a different color skin than those who were leading. See, out of the 244 years, 91, the first 91 of those years, all Americans had protection under the U.S. Constitution except for a group of Americans who had a different skin color than those, the majority of whom wrote the U.S. Constitution. Out of 244 years, 188, the first 188 of the first 244 years in the United States of America, Americans had recourse if they were subject to discriminatory practices except for a group of Americans who had a different skin color. See, the founding fathers strove, as flawed as they were, for the freedoms that they wanted us to enjoy. And unfortunately, we never fully applied the principles in some of these founding documents. We never fully applied them to our life and our culture as the United States of America. And here we are, 244 years later, having not dealt with an issue that should have been dealt with hundreds of years ago. And what we're facing now is the killing of Ahmaud Arbery at the hands of racists and the violent massacre of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer in Minneapolis and the subsequent, and many, many others, by the way, and the subsequent violent riots and vandalism that we see happening on TV all over America. And while the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment and the, uh, the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s and the uh, Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s helped move the needle slightly, we have to face the fact that racism has deep roots that still exist in this country. We can't ignore that fact. We can no longer say that that's a thing of the past if we even said that to begin with. We can no longer think that that's a day gone by. We can no longer pretend that our silence or our not standing up uh, for those who are racist is enough. Church, we have to come together and we have to figure this out and we have to lead and we have to lead our people and we have to lead our culture because racism's roots are deep and it still exists here in America. Many pastors in the past have said that unfortunately, Sunday morning is the most racially divided time of each and every week. And they're true. And so today I wanna to present to you a premise and some a principle, and then some practices that I think that if we apply, we could at least have a foundational beginning for a movement in our community, in our church, and in our country, and in our world. And it begins with this premise 
that the foundation that God established from the beginning of time is that we are created with individual uniquenesses and we are created in his image. Now, some of you may hear that statement or read that statement. You may think, yeah, I know that that's true, but really, like, we've got that down. What does that have to do with anything? I think it is the backdrop of our discussion. I think it frames the landscape of everything that we should be focused on in terms of racism and prejudice and bigotry and how to find reconciliation in our world. See, that statement, the foundation God established from the beginning of time is that we're created with individual uniquenesses and we are created in his image is vitally important for us to understand. We do not need to ignore this, church. All the way back in the beginning in Genesis 1:27, we see that God, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so not only are we unique creations, we're going to get to that in a moment, but we are created in God's image. And so when we look at this, and when we take this and try to tear it down, and when we take this and we try to, to diminish its importance and its role in the gospel and in humanity and in our culture, when we take this and we try to turn it upside down, or when we look at someone else and we devalue the way that God created them through our obvious and direct means or through those some subliminal, more subliminal and indirect means, we are spitting at the face and the image and the character of who God is because all men are created in his image. We're all created in his image. We're all created with uniquenesses. The psalmist understood the uniqueness. I love Psalm 139, 14, one of my favorite verses. He says this, I praise you. He's giving praise to God. He says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it full well or very well. The psalmist understood that we are created with uniquenesses. Paul understood this. The apostle Paul, in, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he writes this in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship that you see up there, that word specifically is, is from, and in the original language in the Greek, it's poema, which is where we get the word poem from. You see, you are created in God's image, and you are created as a work of art. Each and every one of us are his handiwork. We are his creation. And you see, if we understand that as our base value, if we understand that as kind of our foundational value, it sets up the whole discussion on how we treat other people and how we treat those who look differently than us, who may have cultural backgrounds that are different than us or ethnic backgrounds that are different than us. It sets the stage for everything. We are created in the image of God with individual uniquenesses. So that's the premise this morning from the truth of God's word. 
but I want you to hear a principle. And that's this, that I believe that the goal for the church is not sameness, it's not uniformity, it's not that everyone looks exactly alike, but the goal for the church is oneness, that we are one in him. You see, part of what Jesus did when he came to this world, he came to die on the cross for our sins, and he came to pay the penalty for each and every one of us, for all of humanity, the sins of all humanity, so that those who put their faith in him could have eternity one day in heaven. He came to die for our sins, to give us eternity with God one day. But when Jesus came to this world, he turned culture upside down. He turned culture upside down. He brought together races. He brought together people of different cultures. We're going to be taking a look at some of those stories of how he crossed paths with people who were completely different than him. He did it with grace. He did it with truth. He did it with forgiveness and humility. But the first church was a part of this too. The first church turned society on its head. It turned culture on its head in terms of racism. Paul's words from his letter that he wrote to the church in Galatians says this in Galatians 3.28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't get much clearer than that. We are all one in Christ Jesus, and that's why the church's pursuit ought to be oneness. Yes, we can strive for racial unity, and yes, we can strive for racial reconciliation, but church, we have to start somewhere. And if we as a church are committed to the pursuit of oneness, reconciliation will take place, forgiveness will take place, racial unity will take place if we as a church understand our role that we are after oneness under him and in him. The same author wrote a letter to the church in Rome in Romans 2.11, he says, for God shows no partiality. Once again, there's no ambiguity there. God shows no partiality. And so while God created us in his image and in a unique way, God also views us through the lens of what our founding fathers, maybe they didn't quite understand all of this in the beginning, but they called it equality. And so he created us all different yet equal. And in John 17, we see the high priestly prayer that John records that Jesus is praying to the Father, and in verse 21, he says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I love this because what Jesus does in this high priestly prayer is he connects the gospel to oneness. We all are from one, and that we all are in him one. This is a pastor that I served under years ago that um, told his church, uh, he, he said, if you, don't, uh, if you don't like the way that God has created us with all the different backgrounds and all the different ethnicities and on all the different colors of the rainbow of our skin, you are really not going to like heaven at all. And I think that's true. 
And John gave, or, or God gave John uh, a picture of what heaven would look like. And we see in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, look how he describes heaven. Look at how John describes heaven in verses 9 through 10 of Revelation 7. He says this, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, the throne of God, he's talking about there, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so John gave us this picture of heaven that is a multicultural, multicolor, multi-ethnic, multi-background picture of heaven. And listen, church, if we are going to be people who are pursuing heaven, and if we are going to be people who are pursuing Jesus, and if we are going to be people who are pursuing oneness, we best get comfortable with this now because this diversity is a picture of what heaven is will one day be like. We shouldn't ignore our differences. We also, also should pursue oneness. In my striving to, to come up with a word for today's message, uh, I found that Tony Evans used this word oneness, and so I'm borrowing Pastor Tony Evans from Texas. I'm borrowing his phrase here to talk about oneness and I love what he said he said this the goal of racial unity is not sameness but oneness unity is oneness of purpose not sameness of being isn't that great he says that unity is oneness of purpose not sameness of being and as I mentioned in our founding documents here in America our founding fathers wrote this in. And in fact, the Declaration of Independence that was signed on July the 2nd, 1776, you don't realize our Independence Day was that close to being July the 2nd all of these years. It was July the 4th because that's when it was ratified. And here's what they wrote right out of the gates. They said this, and this was all based on many of the verses that we just read. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, that all men, are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. We're going to come back to that word in a second. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the men that wrote that, they didn't always get it right. And in fact, in their personal lives, not all of them, but some of them got this wrong. It makes me think that in some ways that this was the ideal that they were trying to create for America. And there was a moment in time in the 1700s that they maybe had this idea that that's what they were striving for, or that's what they, they wanted to, to aspire to in some way. And they fell short, many of them, not all of them, but many of them. But they had the biblical ideal right. It's where they got this from, is from God's word that we 
hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I, I find it just crazy to think about the fact that they wrote that, and it's the beginning of the Declaration of Independence when, when, when we saw uh, you know, the, the freedom that we had, the new freedom that we had from the tyranny of, of the British colonies back there in the 1700s, and that right out of the gates, the first truth that they mentioned is the one that today, 244 years later, we are still dealing with. And the truth that we still haven't totally figured out. That all men are created equal in God's eyes. That word unalienable. I'm guessing that over the past few years, you've probably never used unalienable in a sentence in regular talk, right? Like I challenge you, if you can, let me know about it this week. If you can use it in the normal course of your life, I would love to know about that. It's not a word that we're very familiar with, but here's what it means. Not transferable to another and not capable of being taken away or denied. Yet for 244 years, we haven't quite figured this out, have we? In our culture and in many other cultures around the world, we haven't figured this out. That God created us equal, and that he expects us, his people, to speak against any time or their superiority. And you know, that's where the rubber really meets the road. That's where racism gets the fertilizer to grow, is from the seed of superiority, from the basis of superiority. It's where the rubber meets the road is this idea that we, because of the way that we're born, because of the class that we're born in, the color of our skin that we have when we're born, or because of certain things that we naturally, intrinsically have, we think ourselves better than someone else. And church, that's the very principle that we need to stand up against. How do we pursue Oneness? How do we as people pursue oneness? I think there's three things that I, I want to just very quickly today give you that I think will help us to pursue it. First and foremost, living out the principle of oneness means that we eliminate any root of superiority. That can come in a thousand different forms, and it can go very, very deep into your life, and it can come from some kind of cultural, environmental upbringing, or it can be a direct thing that you have in your heart, and I want to tell you that it doesn't matter where that is on the spectrum, that God frowns on superiority in any form or fashion. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans 12, 3, because they dealt with this. He says this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so my prayer is, is that we would be people that pursue oneness and in doing so that we would check ourselves out in the mirror of life before we start dealing with it with others and ensure that we don't have a root of superiority down deep, buried underneath the surface in our life. See, living out the principle of oneness means that we eliminate any root of superiority. Secondly, it means that we embrace the fullness of human equality. 
that we embrace the fullness of human equality. Yes, God created us unique. Yes, he created us in his image, but he also views us with equity. And that's the way we ought to view each other is with equity. And I want to remind you just once again, God's word from Galatians, Paul's words inspired by God's Holy Spirit in Galatians 3:28, the second half of that uh, verse, he says, for you are all one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. All one in Christ Jesus. And then lastly, living out the principle of oneness means that we engage in choosing to love others the way that God loved us. And that's a tall order, is it not? That's a tall order because God loved us in spite of our failures. God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for our sin. God loved us enough that he would take on the penalty that we owe for the things that we have done to disappoint him. That's how much he loved us. And so living out the principle of oneness means that we engage in choosing to love others in the same manner which God loved us. John 13, 34 says, a new commandment I give to you. Jesus says that you love one another. That's it. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Church, could you imagine what would have happened if, if God's people here in the United States of America and elsewhere had lived by those principles all these years? Can you imagine that in what would have happened in our pursuit of oneness if, if we truly looked in the mirror and eliminated any root of superiority that we have intrinsically just because of our birth? Can you imagine what would have happened in our world? Can you imagine what would have happened if in the pursuit of oneness, we as God's people would embrace the fullness of human equality that God did create us all different but equal? What would have happened if we had embraced that principle and practice? What would have happened if in living out the principle of oneness, we engaged in choosing to love one another exactly the way that God loved us. Our world would be in a different place if we as a people had chosen to pursue oneness. And we may look around the world, and if I'm really honest with you today, um, I don't even like watching the news anymore. I don't even like reading the news anymore. I don't like hearing it, but if we just stick our head in the sand and ignore this issue, it, I promise you it will continue to fester. And it will get worse. It is time for the church to rise up and to make a stand against this. And there is hope. There is hope. As you can probably imagine, in preparing for this series, I talked to a lot of people and, and talked to one friend who essentially said that we as a nation and we as a people have all the fundamentals to fix the issue of racism. And he went on to explain to me, and I agree with this, that we can't and won't change everyone's attitude towards racism, but if we don't talk about it, if we don't speak up about it, if we don't discuss it, no one's attitudes will ever change. And so there's hope. There's hope. 
Even in the midst of all the chaos and all the news that seems so horrible, there are little nuggets of really cool stories of people changing because of what's happened over the past 30 and 45 days. Oh, and by the way, 244 years. There's a story out of Virginia, I believe it's in Fredericksburg, Virginia. There's a tattoo parlor that was offering free tattoo coverings for people who may have in their past uh, you know, decided to put a tattoo on their body that was something that would have been a racist symbol or offensive to someone else in this regard. And there's a guy by the name of Jeremy who went and he got a, a symbol years ago when he lived a different way, and he went and he took advantage of this free tattoo covering that he received. And he had his tattoo covered with something else that was much less offensive, in fact, very patriotic in nature. And I love what he said. He said, I don't want to say that I was essentially a product of our environment, but it's what we were. It's what we thought we were. And he goes on to say this. He says, it's not me anymore. It's not what I believe in. I don't rep it doesn't represent who I am as a person anymore. And he talks about his struggle to explain why he would have put this offensive tattoo on his body, this racially um, you know, insensitive and, and uh, a symbol that's filled with racism, why he didn't do that. He says, it's hard to explain to my eight-year-old, by the way, biracial daughter, that it was once something that daddy believed in and represented to him. But it is no longer for Jeremy. And it, that is a story of an attitude that changed. And church, if we're going to have any hope of moving the needle forward in these issues, if we're going to have any hope of moving forward in terms of racism and having racial reconciliation and pursuing oneness, we are going to have the hope that God can change people, that his Holy Spirit is still in charge, that his power is greater than any seed or any root of racism, that Romans 15, 13 is absolutely true. When Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I began today's message by telling you that it's not my job to make you comfortable, <laughs> nor is it my job to be comfortable myself. But comfort and hope are two different things. And I want to encourage you today to get real I want to challenge you to, to look in the mirror. I want to challenge you as your pastor, for those of you who are part of this church, to be committed to pursuing oneness. If we individually are pursuing oneness, then collectively, if we all are doing that, then collectively we as this church are pursuing oneness. But I want you to do it with the foundational principle that God can change things, that there is hope for the future. That despite all the negativity, despite all the destruction and violence that we see around us, that there is hope for the future. Father, God, I just want to admit this morning that this is 
a very difficult message series, a difficult message to preach, that it is very hard for us to get our minds around these things. And Father, for me, it may be because of my lack of, of experiencing racism and prejudice, and it may be because I feel guilty in some ways as a white American. Maybe it's because I'm afraid I might make some missteps and I might say the wrong thing. And God, we can live in fear of all of those things and the whole list, or we can choose to walk in the hope that you can change things. And that by us remaining silence because of our silent, because of our fear, that we're adding to the problem. And God, I pray that you would prompt us, that your Holy Spirit would lead us, your church, regardless of the color of our skin, to stand up and to rise and to speak out against injustice when we see it. To be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. Because that's what silence is, continuing the problem. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to be changed by your Holy Spirit. And in these challenging days where we're dealing with two terrible diseases, one physical, one sociological and in humanity. God, I pray as we're faced with these challenges and we're faced with being convicted on how we deal with it, Father, I pray that you would allow us to hold on to the hope that we can have in you. Because you're the only one who can solve any of this. God, help us to believe. Help us to have the faith that goes for the long haul, that even after 244 years, there's still hope of changing this in our country, in our culture, in our community, and in our world. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit leading us. In Jesus' name, I pray.